TV stalking users, securing connected medical devices, and Federal Reserve Bank's take on synthetic identity fraud. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. With Black Friday and Cyber Monday occurring since our last Security Report podcast, I'm sure some listeners are currently enjoying ultra-high-def streaming TV on their brand new smart TVs, possibly even listening to this podcast through the very same device. Not meaning to rain on your retail therapy parade, but the FBI has recently warned consumers that that shiny new 52-inch QLED beauty may be snooping on you, capturing facial biometrics, or worse. With more on the story, is ISMG's managing editor, security and technology, Jeremy Kirk. The FBI has a new suspect in its sights, and there's one in nearly every home, smart TVs. The FBI's Portland office has issued a warning about smart TVs, saying the devices can pose privacy and security threats. It says unsecured smart TVs could provide attackers a path into a person's router as well as take control of the TV. The FBI says hackers could at minimum change channels to show kids inappropriate videos. But in a worst case scenario, they could turn on your bedroom TV, camera, and microphone and silently cyberstalk you. Smart TVs have long been on the radar as potentially problematic Internet of Things devices. The data collected by smart TVs, such as programs watched, can be incredibly valuable for precise ad targeting on the TV itself and other devices used by consumers. On the security front, the FBI's Portland office warns that many newer smart TV models have cameras. In some cases, the FBI says the cameras are used for facial recognition, so the TV knows who is watching and can suggest programming appropriately. The FBI's advice distills what many security researchers and privacy proponents have warned about over the past few years. Many of the concerns mirror those of mobile phone apps, opaque privacy policies, difficult to navigate menus, plus questionable patching and software development. The most obvious way to avoid privacy and security issues with smart TVs is simply not to buy one, but it's actually challenging to purchase a television these days that doesn't have streaming capabilities or connectivity. Two years ago, Samsung said it expected all of its TVs to have web connectivity by next year. And while users can blunt data collection tools by turning them off, it also may mean kneecapping much of the TV's functionality. The FBI recommends that smart TVs be treated in much the same way as mobile devices. Learn about the security settings and pay attention to privacy policies. But if that's like trying to figure out a TV remote, that's not going to be easy. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. It's not just TVs that are getting smart. IoT devices are quickly becoming industrial IoT devices, and what have been analogue instruments are now very much digital and connected. While this spells out massive benefits for many industries, the double-edged sword is that these devices are now also prone to external cybersecurity attacks. This is nowhere more critical than the healthcare industry, where there is a straight line between device security and patient security. And according to Jennifer kovic Bordenick. CEO of the eHealth Initiative and Foundation, an advocacy group, all healthcare industry stakeholders must take critical steps to address the cybersecurity of connected medical devices. Jennifer was interviewed by ISMG's Executive Editor, Healthcare Info Security, Marianne Kolbersak-McGee, on details of a new report that the eHealth Initiative recently put together in conjunction with Booz Allen Hamilton on securing connected medical devices. In this excerpt of their conversation, 
Jennifer discusses the need for a collaborative response to deal with the threat of connected medical device hacking. Here she is. This is actually a really interesting area because this isn't something that just the patient can address or the physician can address or the manufacturer or the government. I mean, this is really a situation where we all need to work together. So some of this, you know, the responsibility of this, I think, really falls on the manufacturers. So the manufacturers have to really be knowledgeable in, in when they create these devices in terms of making sure they understand what the security practices are when they actually design them. And actually, when they're designing them, they need to be thinking about kind of an action plan, what they're going to do in case a vulnerability is found later on. So, for example, once a device is out there in the world, how are manufacturers going to actually be able to update or create a patch or something to help secure the device in the future? So that actually happens at the time the device is actually created now. And that's something we didn't always do in the past. And that's something manufacturers need to think about now. So also something, you know, the FDA is thinking about a lot as well. What are kind of the rules and policies and regulations in terms of notifying people about devices that need to take place? And then healthcare providers and organizations as well need to prepare. And then patients, which is kind of a more recent stakeholder group that we've been thinking a lot about. Patients kind of loud and clear are now saying that they want to be told if there's a cybersecurity matter that impacts their device that they have or that they're using, they want to know about it. So all of us kind of have a role to play in terms of addressing these cybersecurity threats. So there are a lot of different things that, that need to happen. In terms of the healthcare entities themselves, so in terms of providers and physicians' offices, what can they do to address things? The thing that's really discouraging is that, you know, it's, it's just not enough to have a good strong policy and assess your compliance. You can't just kind of <laughs> have good policies and procedures and hope that everything's going to be okay. Even the most compliant organizations that have lots of resources are very compliant, have really tough security, even they, you know, fall victim to some of these threats. There are a lot of successful attacks that are um, done against even strong organizations that have this in place. So it's really important for organizations to have a partnership with um, industry and with the federal government and, of course, all to work together. So so if we know that there's something out there that exists, that we can all try to address it. And, and I can't, you know, emphasize this enough. I mean, it, it seems kind of obvious, but in a lot of cases, it isn't. It's really important that um, the FDA be able to notify physicians and hospitals when they become aware of something and for industry and manufacturers of devices to notify the FDA when they become aware of something and for providers and hospitals to notify patients when they become aware of something. So there's this whole kind of communication chain that needs to occur for this to be successful. So I guess in kind of the broader context, there really needs to be a whole system of communication set up for this to work and for us to really be safe. And finally, synthetic identity fraud remains a growing and pernicious problem in the financial services industry. A white paper released in October by the Federal Reserve System called Detecting Synthetic Identity Fraud in the US Payment System explores behaviours and characteristics that indicate potential synthetic identities. I spoke with Jim Cooner, Secure Payments and Fintech Division Head at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, and asked him, what could be done about synthetic ID fraud? Isn't it just an inevitability given that massive amount of PII in circulation and that constant cadence of data breaches? Here's Jim's response. Well, first of all, you're right. It is, I'd say, inevitable or it is uh, an area the fraudsters go to because of the amount of PII and 
how we use social security numbers as an identifier. This is a US-based problem. Other countries don't have it because they don't have the same social security number structure for how they start an identity. Um, a number of things that can be done first is we've had a series of white papers and we published two. We have one more coming out from the Fed in early next year. And part of the challenge is a lack of information. I've talked to hundreds of community banks, credit unions, and smaller banks, and many of them don't know the problem exists. So first and foremost, we need to get the word out about what this problem is so these institutions and others can start to look for this fraud. Uh, also, we need better data. Uh, the data that's out there, um, it's good directionally to show you how big this problem is, uh, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of good data. So we need better data around this. Also, uh, synthetic identities aren't, um, basically they attack anybody, all different size institutions, government institutions, as I mentioned, auto dealers, healthcare. So this really is a burning platform that's gonna need the industry to come together, to work together, to try to solve the problem. This, this really has to be all of us against the bad guys. So I think that's fundamental. Better definitions, better data, more awareness and coming together. I'd say that's the start of the building blocks to start to make progress here. Okay, so you've outlined that as kind of a, a Fed initiative. Are, are there any other specific initiatives in the pipeline that the, the Fed has or, or other organizations you're working with that are aimed to stem this flood? Yeah, a number of things. Uh, first, as I said, this, this cannot be the Fed's problem or bank's problems or any government entity. It really has to be, you know, the ecosystem of payments and financial services working together. So a number of initiatives um, last year, uh, Congress passed a law that mandated that the IRS has to open up, I mean, the Social Security Administration has to open up um, a query function so that banks can query whether a certain Social Security number matches a particular name. So that will be starting in June of next year. They have a pilot with 10 entities, and then they'll build it up further from there. So that's one, um, but many experts think, major step to help institutions say, is this number actually go with this, this name as a first step? Uh, secondly, there are a number of other organizations trying to raise awareness, a number of other organizations from the government space getting involved. Uh, but I think one of the areas that's most, uh, greatest potential is AI that's being used by a number of different organizations to try to look at the data around the applications and or the credit bureaus looking at these uh, same applications to say this is actually start to look like a synthetic identity. So I mentioned that they look like real individuals, they transact like real individuals, but they have patterns. So AI is getting much better at saying, does this individual really look like a normal human being trying to open up an account? So a couple of examples I think are important here. One is, um, if an individual has only been in the credit system for three months and they have an 800 credit score, there's probably something fishy about that because the amount of time it takes to build up. If an individual is say 25 years old with a great credit score, that's uncommon for someone of that age to have a great credit score. So that should be an indicator. Uh, also if someone say 50 years old, they've got a business, they're married, children, and they're applying for a low value um, account, that's not normal. So those are all indicators of what starts to look like um, the data that they point to something being a synthetic identity. So I think AI really has a lot of uh, potential here. And then there are changes that organizations are making to how do they validate an account when it's first being opened. 
you know, in the olden days, we would look at whether a particular creditor looked credit worthy. You know, we weren't thinking that this was a fake individual. We just wanted to make sure that they had the proper savings or credit history to be able to take a loan or a car loan or a line of credit out. And now we have to look at more than just the normal indicators. As you said, the PII has been breached in many cases. So they're looking at other ways of identifying, does this seem like a real individual outside of the normal checks? So there's a number of things going on in the industry that are starting to, I think, uh, get the data we need to identify what these synthetic identities are. So those are a few examples there. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.